0: You're listening to the SEI podcast series brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. This is the third of our Sydney Environment Institute's the Reemergence of Nature and Culture podcast series. So these podcasts are the brainchild really, of the participants in a two-day symposium we held here at the University of Sydney in July of 2019. And the idea is to share some of the wonderful research and the thinking of our speakers with a wider audience, because really they're all too good for us to share and be selfish about to ourselves. And today we are joined by Dr. Virginia Marshall. Virginia is a practicing lawyer and a legal scholar whose doctoral thesis not only won a prestigious award, but it's also been published as a groundbreaking book book called Overturning Aquinalius, Securing Aboriginal Water Rights. So I encourage you all to rush out and buy it. She's here to share some of her insights on water rights. Virginia has secured also a Distinguished Woman Scholar Award, uh, honoured by the University of Victoria. Of Victoria in Canada, and she's been recognised by the Department of Primary Industries Hidden Treasures Honour Roll, which is the most beautiful name for a government um, award, uh, which is for outstanding rural volunteers for contributing to the well-being and unity of regional communities. Virginia is now with the ANU in an Indigenous postdoctoral research position um that's part of the school of regulation and global governance and with the fenner school of environment and society her current research focuses on leading law reform for indigenous peoples in Australia by critically analysing international indigenous water use to develop culturally appropriate mechanisms for national water frameworks and ethical water use within domestic water regimes. And of course this um, research is very timely given the uh, parlous state of, um, of water uh, access to water in Australia, I suppose, both the pilot state t- in terms of the, the heavens no longer providing and, two, because of the overuse of what water resources we have. So <laughs> welcome, Virginia. <laughs> I'm particularly excited by the prospect of our chat today because your research challenges the myth of Australia as a post-colonial state. And you do that by exposing how the law, now that body of guiding principles we use to organise a just society, how the law continues the colonial myth of terra nullius. And you do that tangentially. You do it by startling us with a new term, the meaning and importance of which should have been front of mind for all decolonial scholars, thinkers and activists here in Australia, but which hasn't been. In this the broadcast, of course, it's not a mystery, so I'll put the listeners out of their misery. I'm talking about the coinage of nullius. So the moment I first encountered your work, I thought, oh, holy cow, of course. Can you start by telling us a little bit of what drew you to this research and then to the designation Aquanullius, please?
1: Well, I think where I started with all of the... Um Conversations in my own head about where this should go, and also talking to others, was when I was a in-house counsel uh, for a a very interesting case uh, of Aboriginal claimants and fishing rights. And that at the time was when I was with Legal Aid Mm -hmm. uh, as a solicitor in criminal law. And this particular one came up. Uh, They uh, certainly had uh, a great need to support um, the Aboriginal peoples uh, with their claim because they were so vulnerable. And of course, they'd been fishing in that area for thousands and thousands of years uh, and it was just uh, such an incredible opportunity. And that started me thinking on water and water rights, which I've, I've always loved the water. I, I love the surf and, and fishing, um, you know, especially with my children. We, we go fishing on a regular basis. So all of those things played in my head and, uh, you know, the testimony um, that witnesses were putting forward uh, and that connection to land and water. And, and um really came from that process when I started seriously about taking on a, a PhD.
0: Right. So it was the lived experience of one of your clients that then led you to try and uncover more about um, what sort of rights were available to accessing water in, in Australia.
1: That's right, and, and water for us is always a social justice issue, and it's a very personal issue because it's our identity. Um, it's what we live and breathe. Uh, people, of course, who um, have always lived in their their families uh, for you know uh, many many thousands of years, you know, pre-contact have uh, fished and eaten and shared, and it's the same with uh, the concept of Aquinalius. Um people had uh, really only encountered this myth that uh, Australia is a settled country, and that is not true. Mm. Um, It is not settled, and certainly our land rights uh, are not fully settled, uh, and there also is uh, then uh, the flow on from uh, land rights to water because we see land and water as inseparable.
0: Right, as do um, do Māori, but I won't go down that track. So what strikes me is if we wanted to be really, really generous, we could say that Aquinalius is something more than denying water rights to the First Nations of the continent, but rather that it came from an enlightened and a generous place. And what I mean by that is that the first European settlers here came from a state in which water rights were privatised, where the wealthy landowners owned the water and the fish and they could restrict who had access to them. So when they settled Australia, by passing ownership of water to the Crown, that then ensured equal access for all Australians. And you could perhaps then argue that the Murray-Darling Basin Plan overturns that principle. So have you got any comments or reflections on the proposition that Aquinalius actually came from a benign place and that it's only been under the more recent neoliberal regime that it's become distorted?
1: No, I think it's always been distorted. Um, and I think that way because I've read widely on the common law uh, water rights in England and, of course, that ran with the land. Mm. So, you know, for, for many, many years uh, prior to even the thought of um, coming to Australia and, and uh, set, set sailing with the, the first fleet, um, riparian rights have really been the foundation for uh, those um, common law rights. And that wasn't a separation then a market-based system as we see today in the Murray darling Basin and a catastrophe. Uh, really, the whole idea of, of riparian rights allowed um, a, a somewhat coexisting um, Aboriginal law and customs and practices. Um, it's really where the distortion has um, occurred is where we divide uh, and make water a property right, uh, a property right which can also um, be a source of equity and also assist in further purchases of, of water or for a mortgageable purpose. Um, But also making land uh, separate to water is um, also not an Indigenous way of thinking. Mm. Uh, Wherever I've gone, whichever meetings uh, around the world, one in Mexico for the United Nations preparatory meeting, uh, for the climate change meeting in New York, uh, all of us know that and have agreed that water is sacred and land is sacred. And the source of all of our identities, whether it's Ecuador, Bolivia, um, Siberia uh, or the Pacific region, that we have an inherent identity with the land and the waters. So the distortion came on that separation uh, during the Howard regime where water was separated from land and a market-based system then was um, uh, developed.
0: Mm. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about this concept of sacredness for water, the sacredness of land? Can you just elaborate a little bit on what that means for you?
1: This is The most important thing is, is the sacredness of, of how we see ourselves as part of that relationship Um, why is it that we we feel we have to go back home wherever home is? You know, even for non-Indigenous people, you know, they feel refreshed when they go to the surf or they go to the mountains or, you know, there's certain parts that people have a connection to. Well, our connection as Indigenous peoples, as you know, Mm -hmm. um, is very much stronger than that. Um, it's, it's just part of who you are and how you feel, um, why you do the things you do, how you think. Um, it, it also gives you a a purpose and a reason of, of seeing a tree, not as a tree. Um, you're seeing that relationship of what it provides and the foods it provides, or the shelter it provides, and the rocks, and the rocks aren't just inanimate, but they're actually part of that creation story, or um, it, it gives you a connection to the law, and and then you understand um, the, the customary law that people talk about often. So that is really what is sacred. It is it what it's what at in times where we feel depressed or uncertain of which way to go and that fork in the road, that we know we have to go back to country and connect because that's the source of who we are. Now that's sacred.
0: That's a wonderful explanation. Thank you very much, Virginia. I think sometimes it's a it's a phrase that can be quite um, mystifying to people, and I think you've unpacked that beautifully. Thank you. You're welcome. Actually, and it, it um, reminds me a little of um, some of Rachel Carson's work that got forgotten, where she talked about um, the requirement for. People in the U.S. to um, to reconnect with wonder, to to actually uh, to uh, envelop themselves in the wonder of nature, to revive their souls. It's a similar notion, I suspect. Okay, so just m- moving on from from that, when we, you were speaking with us at the symposium, you were talking about indigenous science, and I'd like to pick up on um, some of that conversation you had with us about Indigenous science. And I know that for for most of the colonial history of Australia, that the idea of Indigenous science or in the, the colonial history, actually, of the whole of the Pacific, the idea of Indigenous science has been viewed as an oxymoron, um, that, you know, all people's have a scientific inquiry, that they have learning and structures and knowledge, that shouldn't be a startling thing. But rather than a source of future inquiry, of collaboration and discovery, sadly, um, the settlers dismissed the notion of that science. The assumption was, I think, then and still is, that we don't have a science, that we don't even have a fa- faculty for science. So can you talk a wee bit about the epistemology of science in this continent and how scientific knowledge is constituted and perhaps contrast that with the European model?
1: Well, I think it's really important, again, when we think of how long um, Aboriginal peoples have been here on this continent. We're talking about tens of thousands of years, even in the Kimberley, um, with recent artefacts discovered Uh, Once again, it's 100,000 years. So even if we put that into context of time, understanding the use of bush foods, um, and of course, bush foods, um, uh, foods of Aboriginal uh, Australia has um, creation stories attached to them, you know, how they became, what they are today, you know, and why. Uh, And they provide important lessons for us to understand. So... um, Again, it's it's much like Aquinalis. The foods and the medicines can't be separated from Aboriginal peoples themselves. And they have that story, that link with them. So over those thousands of years, as as we would appreciate, that Aboriginal people um, had an understanding of observation and use uh, and also um, had a very... uh, idea of understanding of the cosmology, of traveling um, by the stars, you know, there's all of that rich, incredible history, which is science. Uh, And we understand that uh, in in Western science because that's what we use as well. You know, if we're going to actually um, look at launching a new product and it's going to use a... um, an Aboriginal food or an Aboriginal um, medicine from a tree or a or a plant, we have to go through the process of seeing whether uh, it's viable, um, and that's what we do with seeds, and also whether it's uh, of use. Uh, what what is it made of? You know what structure is made of um, to be a, a product or a commercial product. So. In all of those processes, we use Western science, but with all of the usage of our plants that we eat uh, and also the medicines that we use, there is a keen scientific process which is Indigenous science. And the appreciation of that, uh, especially now in the last couple of years, is yes. There is Indigenous science and there is a purpose that we now understand that it wasn't that somebody randomly uh, took um, some leaves or randomly took um, the roots uh, from the ground and then um, made them up into a medicine. That there's a rich understanding of what uh, that particular plant can do, its relationship with the community uh, and also um, how and when it can be used Uh, In a Western sense, everything uh, that is commercial is able to be used all the time, at any time, and picked at any time, which you've seen over the years with tea tree. Uh, But this is actually not an Indigenous perspective. So the science, again, is very different than an application of how we understand Western science to be. Indigenous science really is personal and familiar and communal very different from a Western perspective.
0: Okay, so when you say we've got this new realisation about Indigenous science and there is an acceptance that, yes, this is science, these practices that we have are science, who's the we in that realisation?
1: Well, I think that that's a really good question. When we think of the we, is it us? Um, You know, are we part of that conversation? Uh, Is it the broader we in in civil society? I think first off, um, with Indigenous science or foods, Aboriginal foods or medicines, it has to be the community. Uh, It has to be their voices that are heard strongly. And I think that because there's such a, a commercial drive, especially in wanting to know about Indigenous knowledge, Um, wanting to uh, have especially uh, fire management knowledge, uh, which is a good example. Uh, There are many people that want to use that knowledge without incorporating the community, and that is not uh, a way forward for community. It's very important that uh, these uh, issues uh, with bush foods or um, medicines really uh, are driven and led by Aboriginal peoples themselves, and are partnered with um, other uh, partners who may be non-Indigenous, but it is driven, and it all is also an employment and also builds capacity within communities, because uh, it, there is very few opportunities for Aboriginal peoples, especially in rural, remote, to actually um, remain on country, remain on homelands, uh, and if if this uh, area of their uh, knowledge and their employment is shifted away uh, from the management of Aboriginal peoples uh, it it really gives uh, them less and less opportunities to manage country country successfully but also in the way that it was designed to be for the past thousands uh, you know of
0: years so what what I think you're um, saying here is that there is a risk that there will be a continuation of the um, sort of the, the colonial appropriation of a resource, and in this case, it may not be uh, a physical resource. It's, you're really talking about intellectual resources.
1: That's right. That's right. And, and, and intellectual property um, that really is not highly regarded here in Australia, because Australia has not ratified the Nagoya protocols. We give. Um, very scant acknowledgement, I believe, to the Convention on Biological Diversity. We don't really incorporate that um, seriously into our domestic legislation. And if we're serious, we would uh, also uh, ratify the Nagoya Protocols and incorporate that um, in our intellectual property uh, laws and regimes. Uh, That would be a very important step because that also means that the supply chain uh, for Aboriginal peoples is uh, protected. If we don't protect the supply chain, if we don't protect uh, Aboriginal peoples having those industries uh, uh, within their communities, on their communities, on their homelands, it it means uh, then those opportunities to be connected to country uh, will be uh, less and less able to occur.
0: So you're saying that there are very few protections for Aboriginal intellectual property?
1: That's correct. You know, when we talk about copyright, um, we have uh, attribution. So there's moral rights that are protected. Uh, But if we look at legal rights, that's what we need to, to really be talking about, not only just copyright and cultural expressions, Uh, As we know, uh, there's many of those areas, traditional cultural expressions that aren't always protected sufficiently, but when we're talking about medicines and the use of medicines or bush foods, we don't have the protections required uh, and also we don't have sufficient protections for Aboriginal people in patents, for example. IP Australia doesn't have a system where Uh, If a patent application is then uh, reviewed, that uh, if it uses the words uh, Aboriginal knowledge or Aboriginal peoples use this particular source, uh, there is no objection phase, for example. So for many years, we've asked IP Australia to have an objection uh, process. So Aboriginal peoples could be informed who are from that particular area or group and they could uh, then contact IP Australia with the knowledge that uh, either th- that was legitimately shared or uh, was not. So there's a whole range of different issues that really um, go to also water knowledge, the knowledge of water, water use, uh, fire management. As I've mentioned, there are a whole range of different issues in that uh, in- Indigenous knowledge that uh, really end up being um, used by non-Indigenous people for commercial gains. So that is a big concern for communities that that they actually still manage, still control um, those processes.
0: So you're saying there's nothing in place yet and that people are concerned. Is there any um, process set up by either state governments or by the federal government that involves uh, discussions around this, this issue? Is there anything currently happening to protect or to begin to look at ways of protecting Indigenous knowledge?
1: Well, there are um, different biodiversity acts. Uh, I know Queensland is going through a process of review However, it's really important uh, that governments really acknowledge where that knowledge came from, and also if there is a commercialisation, how Aboriginal peoples will benefit. And I think Mm. those conversations are really at at its infancy. Mm. So that's why I'm saying that we need to incorporate... um, the CBD, the Convention on Biological Diversity, we need to ratify the Nagoya Protocols in Australia because the intellectual property regime is um, governed by Commonwealth law and also for the state and territories, biodiversity uh, laws are extremely important because they also cross over Indigenous knowledge and some of that knowledge uh, can be exemplified by bioindicators. So Uh, Many plants also, uh, in in the time that they flower or they fruit, um, provide knowledge. Um, So that also needs to be protected for communities by communities. But we haven't got that far uh, to really understand that um, Indigenous knowledge is not just a free-for-all, as it has been with water. You know, everybody's been using water and um, throwing contaminants in it uh, in, in shapes and forms um, that we wouldn't have even thought about as Aboriginal peoples pre-contact. Uh, so that mismanagement of water is really important to this conversation. We've, we've had that for years. And this is what we're living through at the moment is, is not a great appreciation of what Indigenous knowledge is.
0: Well, um, do you think there is any light at the end of the tunnel? Do you think there is an appetite to learn?
1: I think there are individuals who really are keen. And as we know, many people devote much of their time going to remote and rural areas and have a keen sense of understanding and respect for Aboriginal communities. And, and they're certainly the people we need to retain and, um, and people who advise us and, and give their time pro bono so there are some keen individuals but uh, it really it's up to now governments and the federal government to ensure that uh, we now fully embrace the Nagoya Protocols and ratify them because then we'll be able to incorporate those protections for Aboriginal people, for Aboriginal medicines and for Aboriginal bush foods.
0: Mm. Mm. Perhaps the Prime Minister's... Um Lack of enthusiasm for global um, mechanisms may mean that's that's a little further down the track than than we would like. Virginia, I'd just like to to um, to turn the conversation to something that you mentioned earlier, which was your um, involvement with the United Nations Indigenous Peoples Climate Change Summit last month, and. Look at your argument that indigenous peoples must be included in climate change decisions, in planning for adaptation to climate change, and in, in mitigating climate emissions. So, could you could you talk about that, and perhaps you might like to link that um, to the Ten Dizits project that you talked about with us at the uh, at the conference.
1: Well, I think that uh, the meeting um, that I was called to uh, with three other colleagues to represent the Pacific region uh, was, as I said, held in Mexico City and uh, was the United Nations preparatory meeting in Mexico City for climate change. And uh, climate change is seen as a crisis issue for Indigenous peoples. And even though we came from very different parts of the world with very many different... Uh, issues and and huge crises, Uh, we know that we certainly want to see the nation states uh, take these issues seriously and collectively uh, go forward in a process that everybody shares the weight of uh, the impending uh, climate change to two degrees, for example. Uh, we were also very concerned um, during that meeting that, you know, it was 1.5, and uh, and, the, and the alarm bells uh, don't seem to be going off um, broadly enough.
0: Sure, don't.
1: So that's right, and, and and I think the the most important part was that we we're actually to, together talking about these things and how to get some traction, because the United Nations is a very large uh, organisation. And there are very committed people um, who, are from the youth, uh, and also have been going to the United Nations for 10, 20, 30 years, and, and hopeful of change. But you know, the one example really was um, very relevant to you know how we are so passionate um, uh, across the world to. To have the nation states really see the the impending crisis uh, worsening, is that when we talked about um, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and how it was uh, formed and voted on, and we we saw even up until 2006, um, Australia, America, uh, New Zealand, and Canada had voted against. Um, United Nations declarations on the rights of Indigenous people, which is not that long ago, and they weren't keen. They weren't keen to support it. Um, And also how many drafts that were put on the table just to get the S on Indigenous peoples as a collective. That took um, quite a a lot of work and negotiation. So I think that sometimes we uh, use and we write about um, international law as if it's a fait accompli. And the one take-home message, um, whether it was climate change or the issues that we have with water or our forests, our bush, um, the use of our water, fresh water, and the contamination and warming, acidification of um, seas, is that um, it comes back to respect and the lack of respect that people really see this incredible environment that we have before us. Trees um, that, that play such an important part, and the types of trees and the relationship to everything else the ground cover, um, shrubs, and, and the canopies you know, there's this huge picture that needs to be really embedded deeply in everybody's soul that um, we need to really respect um, so much that we have and we take for granted. Um, that we can turn on a tap and, and water comes out. Many of uh, the indigenous peoples around the table, they couldn't drink uh, water because it's contaminated. And we've had that in Australia, you know, where Aboriginal people are drinking bottled water because their water sources are contaminated, not from them, but from uh, other um, other uh, people who have come in and, uh, for example, put a water sewerage over an aquifer. Um, that's completely contaminated the, the water resource. Um, Botany Bay, for example, very um, powerful contaminants were put in uh, the Botany Bay aquifer in Sydney and destroyed such an incredible um, natural source of water. So we've seen that, you know, on the rivers that are in crisis across the world, the rivers that are in crisis here in Australia, the murray darling Basin, as you mentioned, um, is, is a man-made disaster. And it, it really needs to be addressed. It's, it's no accident. But I think we're fearful in Australia of tr- structural change. And um, only through law reform uh, and and the change, the willing change, to um, revise and, and really restructure that system with Indigenous peoples at the centre of that structure, that new structure, at the centre of that reform, at the centre of entitlements to water, and all all other things that we've discussed today with the Nagoya Protocols and and protecting um, Indigenous knowledge. Unless that's uh, at the centre of our conversation, we won't walk towards reconciliation in a quick enough speed to, to really value what we have here in Australia
0: and perhaps to save what we have here in Australia. I'm really interested in your use there of um, the word respect, and I'm thinking of how that links back to the concept of the sacred and some people's inability to appreciate that that sacredness or to offer a sense of respect or any respect to the non-human realm. Can you tell us a wee bit about your new research directions and projects? You know where you're going and what are your new provocations for us?
1: Well, I guess the the amazing part about both of us we, we're in a universities and they really offer opportunities um, for new collaboration and new ideas to be formed and progressed. And that's the most exciting part, um, I think, in the takeout. For all that we do especially uh, at the moment i'm working with a lot of amazing people who cross over between economics and science uh, regulation global governance uh, law so you yeah, know there's just so many amazing people uh, who really want to get on board uh, whether it's um, building new frameworks for water water use um, or if it's people who uh, really want to see a change in the way we think, you know, which comes back to that respect with the, the way students talk about these issues, I think that's also really important. And also building a critical mass of Indigenous students um, in our universities, uh, that's really something exciting that uh, I'm really enjoying. But it, I think uh, it's also in climate change and also water that my research interest lies uh, at, at present, and also with polity. And I think that's uh, also an inter- interesting discussion. You know how we actually cross borders and how how we carry that respect and 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 how we actually process um, our relationships about with Aboriginal peoples, what these are, um, how we respond uh, to Indigenous peoples' um, discussions on a range of issues, uh, I think that really is um, something that we need to talk more about. And also um, truth and reconciliation is a lot of my, what I do in my work as well, is how, how do we actually respond to that um, in relation to climate change and, and water issues so, you know, there's, there's a very big, rich area of, of research that, um, I'm doing and I've also, um, actually probably involved in a lot of public service and leadership areas too, because I'm still going to the courts as a duty solicitor, uh, and I'm, I'm on a litigation case for, um, native title, uh, for Aboriginal claimants and, um, and that's very exciting. That's in the area of water as well. Oh, good. Yeah, so there's a whole range of of different issues that I'm actually um, able to enjoy and progress, and I think um, being positive that you know each one of us can make a difference. But you know, I think we need to know what we can do to understand Indigenous Australia, you know, out there. How do we um, connect? And I think that's really important. That we connect with that knowledge and that respect of being, you know, that we're only really a short time here as an Australian nation, but as an Indigenous nation, we need to see that that is so important to who we are as Australians and also international citizens. So understanding that is is where we need to go.
0: I think that that in itself is a wonderful provocation to uh, end on Virginia. How do we understand ourselves as Australians in terms of being um, much more than just a European history, but a history of many nations over many millennia? Look, thank you very much for your time. I realise that um, you've managed to cram us into a very busy day, so I really, really appreciate it, Virginia. And I look forward to carrying on the dialogue, whether we do it again publicly or whether we just do it privately. So thanks very much, Virginia. I
1: do too. I loved it. Thank you for everything.
0: You're welcome. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you.
1: Bye.